trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so happy that you are part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I encourage you to pay a little visit to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Two reasons, actually. Number one, I want you to check out the show notes. I have links to the stories that I share with you, information sources, uh, just, you know, great reading material for people who are, are serious enough about understanding the world around them that they're they're willing to actually put aside some of their leisure time and use it for reading. I know it's kind of a quaint notion. Not everybody likes to do it. I mean, we we all like to have fun. Some hobbies are more fun and expensive than others. But, you know, if you, if you really want to, uh, if you want to become a great person. I'm just going to put this out there. You have to be willing to tackle things that are higher than your head, by which I mean your your current understanding. Now, that doesn't mean you have to turn into a bore. It doesn't mean, you know, you've got to you'll become the, the classical, uh, you know, professor in the tweed suit. It's just if you look at people who have had great influence, and I'm talking historically, I'm not talking within recent memory. Just go go back, you know, go back 100 years, 1,000 years, go back 3,000 years. It's not like we don't have a recorded canon of what those great minds thought. We have it. It's the great books of Western civilization. But I understand, you know, in a, in a world with, you know, beautiful widescreen LCD TVs, you know, the, the clearest possible you know, sources, screens, you know, for, for education and, and for entertainment. You know, reading a book seems, I get it, it seems mundane. But if you were to, I believe, if you were to look at uh, the, the formula for becoming a well-rounded person, notice I didn't say success, because I don't want you to, to immediately think of it in terms of, you know, net worth and their land holdings, you know, and, um, you know, in, in different eras, it would have been how many slaves you owned, you know, how big was your empire, how many other empires or other, you know, nation states or people had you conquered? I'm talking about a kind of personal greatness in which they contributed something to the great conversation that has been flowing through the ages. And, and I got to tell you something. A lot of people get this sense of false humility when they hear about this and think, well, I could never contribute something like that. Who do I think I am? You know, I'm not Plato. I'm not Socrates. I'm not, you know, I'm not contributing in any discipline, you know, science or poetry or literature, whatever, whatever it may be. But I'm sure that those people who contributed to that conversation, who have that conversation in each, you know, time period of human history. They all started out just just like you and me, just average people who found their inner personal greatness. And, you know, this isn't rah, rah, you know, everybody gets gold stars. I'm suggesting something that, that actually will make people uncomfortable, at least if I'm doing it right, it should be making you uncomfortable. And that's suggesting that within you, is someone far greater 
than you ever dreamed possible. Now, this, by the way, can swing the other way. There are some people who believe, no, within me is a person far greater than anybody will ever truly appreciate. So you don't take it to the to the point of uh, conceit, but take to the point of um, developing yourself, your understanding of the world, your willingness to improve on your own character and to refine your own character. You find that, uh, man, people have contributed some serious understanding over the ages. And, and I have to point this out just because some people say they had slaves. They they were this. They were that. There, there's always something to disqualify you can't believe anything they said, but I look at it for yourself. Read it. You know, discuss it with a friend if you can get somebody to, to discuss it with you. You'll find out they had a lot of insights to offer. And I think the, the, the most overlooked opportunity, in my opinion, that, that is in many of our lives or could be, is we, we don't seek out opportunities to come face to face with greatness. And I'm not talking greatness in a political sense or, you know, their stardom or their wealth is what made them great. I'm talking about truly great people. Now, some of them may have been famous and wealthy, but I'm talking about the kind of people who became well-known because of their contribution to, you know, to the cause of, of humanity, to, to making our understanding or our lives better. And there's something great that happens when you are exposed to this. I mean, it's not just a pleasant way to pass the time. Although, I'll tell you, given a choice between, you know, hey, let's run everywhere and do everything when we go on vacation. Man, there's nothing I love more than taking a good book and find a time and a quiet place, particularly if it's up in the mountains, to just sit and read. Oh, man. One of life's great pleasures. And if you're reading with purpose, I mean, if you're really seeking out, you know, knowledge, understanding, some kind of uh, applied information it's very beneficial you become a better person you know from from what you know so i'm telling you the next time you're at a yard sale and you see somebody you know selling off a set of the great books of western civilization don't turn your nose up and don't think you have to become all you know all so so fancy but uh, consider what a great treasure of knowledge there is how many millions and billions of minds have been asking questions and trying to refine their understanding of, of things that, uh, that matter. I, I feel like, you know, Brian, you were trying to persuade people to, uh, to embrace the boringest thing they've ever done in their life. <laughs> and, and it may be, it may sound like that. You know, I don't want to read old books. I don't want to read books that make me have to look up words that I don't understand. And yet... I, I have to tell you, there's no, there's no shortcut. You, if you really want to understand what you're reading, if you want to learn to um, exercise your brain to the point where it can run in that world of, of uh, you know, ideas that once were over your head, you just you got to be willing to do it. You just got to be willing to pay the price. Now, why would this benefit you? Well, there's there are a couple of things. Number one. Reading books that are above your head makes you a better thinker. Now, I'm not saying it makes you the smartest person in the room, the person, you know, that's that's uh, going to win every time when you team up on Trivial Pursuit. You know, you're you're guaranteed going to be, you know, the ringer. It's more about learning to appreciate human nature 
and and knowing how to to make a contribution with the way that you live your life. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be a household name. It just means you you will tap into whatever your your personal greatness is. And it's it's different for every single one of us. Some people just have a real knack for something. I, you know, I consider it a gift. I don't, I don't, you know, shy away from, from that. I think that, uh, I think God gives us gifts and it's up to us to discover them, develop them. And if we're smart to use them to bless other people's lives and, and help them, that's the happiest people that I know. Those are the people who are producing things that, that actually make life better are people who have found and developed a gift and then they use that gift in, uh, in, helping bring happiness or beauty or you know knowledge or you know liberation whatever it may be to other people i know it sounds lofty and trust me i know how precious spare time is none of us has as much spare time as as we would like but i'm just going to put this out there and suggest if if you're really serious about becoming a better person in the sense that you're you're more well-rounded you understand what ideas influenced the thinkers and the leaders and the the people, the common man all along that, uh, that journey of recorded human history. And you're going to be amazed how many, the same, how many times the same problems crop up over and over again. And on the one hand, you might despair because, oh man, we're slow learners. We never seem to get it. On the other hand, human nature is remarkably consistent. Meaning you can learn from the mistakes that other people have made and hopefully not repeat them. So I'm putting a small challenge in front of you and you don't have to pick it up if you don't want to. Um, but in a, in a time where being able to discern truth from error, fact from fiction, when you're being played to when someone is speaking truthfully with you. You've got to sharpen your ability to uh, to reason, to order your thoughts and I know it sounds like, I don't know, maybe to some people it sounds like, well, that's, you know, that's intellectual or philosophical snake oil. But all I can say is when you read what the great minds of history have had to say, you think in a broader way than you did before. And if you're trying to solve problems, that's not a bad thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, so I, I had the opportunity over the weekend to, to make a little road trip to a neighboring state. And I hate to be deliberately vague like this, but but now I feel like I have to just because I'm 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 worried that I'm going to jeopardize somebody because I, I'm going to I'm going to challenge the the COVID orthodoxy just for a moment. I just I want to mention this because it it was the most remarkable um, jar of my memory that I've had in quite some time. Um, so I I traveled to visit some family, and uh, while catching up with uh, with a cousin, uh, we stopped and and grabbed. A bite to eat at a little roadside diner. 
Now, there was a sign on the door that warned, look, hey, you know, if you're showing any symptoms of any kind, please don't come in here. Um, But I went in there and not a mask in sight. Nobody. None of the employees, none of the, the patrons. And it was, you know, it was not packed, but but definitely there there was bustle. going. There were a lot of people who were there. And it just it was the most incredible return to normal for a minute. And, and, I, and I just I contrast this with uh, with the the fear that, that seems to, to just consume the way that uh, the covid is approached in, in the media. I mean, look, I. I don't pretend to, to be a medical professional, but I can see that in some places the risk is low enough that uh, the people have just simply they, they've resumed their lives. Um, all of us know people who have had coronavirus some have had very bad experiences with it some have had very mild experiences for the most part it appears that uh, the majority of people are going to have a very mild reaction if any a lot of people don't even know the only way they find out is oh you tested positive so why is it when when that is reported on that the 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 language the imagery of fear always seems to be first and foremost I got an article here from Jeffrey A. Tucker. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And Jeff nails it. He's, he's particularly pointing to the New York Times and saying, hey, they are trying to scare you. And, and he wonders why. And, and he points out at the very beginning of his article, coronavirus cases in the U.S. are down nearly 50 percent. Could be seasonal, could be the vaccine, could be herd immunity from natural infection. He, you know, he lists any number of possibilities. But the way that the New York Times reported this, oh my gosh, it was like it's like the country, you know, drowning in blood. And I, I kid you not, the graphic they show of the U.S. it's it's showing. Um, let me see if I can see it. This is their criteria. Here's where your risk is low. Then there's medium. There's high. There's very high. That's the blood red one. And then extremely high in purple. And holy cow, they make it look like, you know, the the United States is just absolutely being consumed by coronavirus. And yet when you look at it and, and we're talking 11 or more people per 100,000 who generated a positive PCR test for the coronavirus, we're not talking deaths or hospitalizations, not even symptomatically sick. 11 positive PCR tests. That means an infection rate of 0.01%. But you, I mean, it looks like, well, this is where the radiation spread after the nuclear holocaust. That's how alarming that map looks. And the question I'm asking you to consider, why would that be reported that way? Could it be told another way that's not nearly so, I don't know, dramatic, threatening, scary? All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Caller, welcome to the show. I'll play the medical expert, Brian. It can't be the vaccine, my friend. There's no corona in the vaccine. Tell me more. Well, that's just uh, that's what uh, well gene therapy. They've never been able to isolate it. This is what I heard from Dr. Stockwell's radio show and Kate Daly, and they don't know each other. There's journals going around, other people from Canada, professionals saying, They've never isolated this bug. They, they, this is not. It's, it's even a matter of legal reclamation, so they can't be sued later. 
but I'll let people do their research on that. However, if you really want to catch more bugs, you need to exchange your cloth mask for the Fram air filter in your automobile. <laughs> uh. It catches more. It does. It uh, your your car's air filter will capture six to ten microns. That cloth 49ers hanky on your face is 200 micron mesh. So use your car's air filter. Okay. Catch more bugs. If we can just come up with some comfortable apparatus to carry it around, I'm sure it'll be a hit. Maybe a business opportunity there, my friend. There we go. Jared, thanks for the call. You bet. All right. 801-331-8113. I mean, tell me, tell me what would make people report news in such a, in such a way if, if it wasn't about trying to keep us scared. Jeff Tucker, in talking about this, this New York Times, um, this, this graphic that they showed, says that once you add all of these numbers up, and he, he walks through 11 positive PCR tests, an infection rate of 0.01%, and he says, consider, too, the New York Times reports that these tests in the past have generated up to 90% false positives. And in addition, the infection fatality ratio for those under 70 could be as low as 0.03%. So he says you add all that up, and you end up with a very long string of zeros followed by some number. He says, I'm going to let somebody else do the math. In, in any case, all these data are mostly based on illusion. His point being, we're talking about a vanishingly tiny chance of severe outcomes for the population at large, and that's dependent almost entirely on demographics. But the New York Times is telling people now, you know, because of this threat, you cannot live a normal life. And listen to, listen to the suggestions they have these are the warnings that they have about how to you know stay out of danger by the way these are big bright red warnings uh, by the way uh, jeffrey tucker points out here that uh, people in florida georgia south carolina texas south dakota and many other states are living happy normal lives this is what i saw yesterday when i was visiting a neighboring state but they're doing it all wrong according to the new york times here's what they should be doing jeff tucker says let's look at their life advice for anyone living in a very high risk area indoor activities are very dangerous right now and so the times advises avoid indoor dining bars gyms movie theaters non-essential shopping as well as having friends over to your home and indoor personal care services like haircuts and manicures they say, given the severity of the outbreak in Berkshire County, spending time inside with people from other households puts you at risk for getting the coronavirus or spreading it to others. You can lower your risk while grocery shopping and during other essential trips by keeping your visits as short as possible and consider using delivery or curbside pickup instead. Next, it says avoid non-essential travel. If you must take a taxi, open the windows and sit far away from others in the vehicle. If you need to take a public take public transit, try to avoid rush hours and crowds so you can keep your distance from others. If you fly, choose less crowded flights or airlines that keep middle seats empty. And then it says avoid events with more than a handful of people. So this would mean weddings, funerals, concerts, sporting events and other gatherings that bring multiple households together are where COVID can spread easily. And so it says consider postponing. Religious services are safest when conducted outdoors and without singing. Oh, there's more. But the bottom line here, and this is what Jeff Tucker's pointing out, no haircuts, no manicures, no gathering, no travel, no friends, no bars, no restaurants, no singing. 
be very afraid constantly. And he says to him, that sounds like insanity defined. Look at how they tip their ruling class hand. People should not go to the store, but rather have their groceries delivered. Well, he says delivered by whom? Apparently not readers of the New York Times. To the Times, he says there's only us and them. The clean people versus the dirty people who get to travel to deliver us our groceries and essential services. Our job is to sit in a perpetual state of disease avoidance while they operate as sandbags to create the herd immunity from which we will benefit. He's pretty blunt here. He says it's the new feudalism. I don't think he's wrong. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, our program is brought to you in part today by Monticello College and also by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I'm sharing with you an article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And I would encourage you, if you haven't signed up for their daily emails, man, they have so much good information. It's, it is very, very nonpartisan, very fact-based, well-researched, you know, documented. Um, I'm not saying they're, they're absolutely infallible, but I think they try harder than others to really get to the bottom line. And, and I've found them to be extremely fair in, in how they report on things. Now, Jeffrey Tucker's talking about how the New York Times wants us consumed by fear, isolation, and misery. And unless you think, well, what's his beef with the New York Times? Um, through this whole coronavirus pandemic, through all of the uncertainty and all of the fear and disruption and even despair that people have suffered over the last year, the Times has again and again been the reliable voice of doom and the voice of, you know, we must do whatever uh, the, the doctor, Dr. Fauci or, you know, whatever this or that bureaucrat is telling us. I mean, they've been very, very um, partisan in terms of how they have covered this and and very, very uh, sensational. So I shared with you a couple of their suggestions of, of what people should do who live in um, what are called... Uh, very high risk areas. And by the way, this is probably 80 plus percent of the United States, at least. And I think it, that includes Alaska and Hawaii. But now we're looking at the very, oh, I'm sorry, extremely high risk, which pertains for as low as 20 positive PCR tests per 100,000 people. And so they're saying in this case, here's how you avoid, you know, uh, spreading COVID. Indoor activities are considered extremely dangerous right now, and so they say avoid indoor dining, bars, gyms, movie theaters, non-essential shopping, as well as having friends and family over to your home. So this is kind of like the high-risk or very high-risk ones. Given the uh, se- severity of the outbreak in Alchua County, spending time inside with people from other households puts you at risk for getting the coronavirus or spreading it to others. And again, they talk about use delivery or curbside service instead of shopping in person wherever possible. If you're shopping in person, go during less crowded hours. Keep your visits very short. They also talk about avoiding non-essential travel. They also talk about avoiding events with uh, more than a handful of people. There is no difference here between the recommendations for serious and extreme risk. There's none. They're identical. 
And Jeff Tucker points out, if you look at the map that, that comes with this, and again, you'll find a link to this in the show notes at com. you can see that most of the country right now is in extreme risk. That's according to the New York Times. In fact, there are only two counties in the U.S. that are considered at low risk. So he says, let's take a look at Prairie County, Montana. It's one of two places you can live without the terrifying prospect of dropping dead from disease. There are 1,300 people living there. So if one person tests positive, that immediately shifts the entire county into extreme risk. So the trajectory since November 1st looks utterly hilarious. Tucker says it toggles between low and extreme risk with a total of 70 cases in three months with most daily cases at exactly zero. So what, according to the Times, should the good people of Prairie County do? Well, they should be grateful to be relatively safe, but try their best to stay put. Do not go anywhere near the scary places elsewhere. They should stay in their bubbles. And this is the recommendation. Keep risk levels in mind as you travel. Consider avoiding high-risk destinations. Traveling to other low-risk areas is safer. Airports, bus terminals, and other transportation hubs often bring people from many different places together. If other areas are experiencing COVID-19 outbreaks, transportation hubs may be risky. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, at some point, the media is going to have to admit complicity in the creation of this extremely unscientific, pathological, unwarranted, and deeply destructive disease panic. They created it. Starting with the now discredited Donald McNeil's February 27th, 2020 recommendation that we go medieval with the coronavirus. Jeffrey Tucker says the whole paradigm amounts to a rejection of public health, which is always not just about one pathogen, but all threats to human health, and not just for the short term, but for the long term. He says the defining mark of 20th century public health, as distinguished from the Middle Ages, is that we recognized that pathogens are all around us and need to be managed rationally. Oh, also the paradigm rejects human rights and freedom. So Jeffrey Tucker says we don't need to destroy society, lock people in their homes, tear down businesses, close schools, traumatize kids, drive people to alcoholism and drug abuse, divide society between the clean ruling class and the dirty working class, ban travel, close churches, abolish choirs, close the arts, whip up the population into a frenzied psychological meltdown in order to deal with a new strain of a respiratory virus. But he says, tell that to the New York Times. And he's right. I think he's right to to point out what they are doing. And I would suggest that to take a look at the media even closer to you. I know in, in my home state of Utah, there is no question. Much of the mass media is totally on board and, and supports the, the official narrative that this is the most dangerous thing ever. And, you know, you can't present this as an either-or kind of thing. Well, you either believe this is real and you take these extreme measures, or you're a denier. You think this is a hoax. You think it's some way to just, you know, try to con- to control everybody. Oh, believe it or not, you can, you can very much recognize, no, it's a real virus. And for some people, it is a real threat. But I mean, when you look at look at how the the number of cases are down, look at how um, how notably unsevere many people's cases are who do actually contract COVID nineteen, 
That doesn't minimize those who do have a bad time with it, but it helps us maintain some perspective and maybe maybe think twice before we shut down, you know, entire sectors of the community before we put people unnecessarily at risk. If that's the case, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be open minded about this, but. I don't know. I've talked to I've talked to a number of small business owners, not a ton, but I've talked to a handful of small business owners who are struggling. Some of them have actually been effectively put out of business. Some are just hanging on. But this is just not sustainable. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go so far as to tell you what it's all part of an evil plan. There are people who are far better versed in all, all of that than, than I am. But at some point, you've got to be willing to start questioning, you know, what you're being told. I, you know, the, the double masks thing. I'm to the point now. I just I just kind of roll my eyes. I'll carry a mask with me. Occasionally, I'll use it to get into a store. You know, just if they have an enforcer there who's, you know, telling people put on a mask, I'll put it on. But I, I'll either pull it down or remove it at the very first opportunity. And it's not because I hate people. It's just it's 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 hard to breathe. I don't like it. And also I'm not carrying, I'm not going out there with any symptoms, which I think I should probably mention just because, you know, I wouldn't willingly go out there and expose other people. If I had symptoms, absolutely. I wouldn't. And I suspect you probably wouldn't either. It's just, it's so interesting. My mind is still reeling from the fact that when I go to the store where I live in, in Utah, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty well populated area. Masks are the norm. And I mean, by far, in most stores, you're talking 90 plus percent are wearing a mask. It was just so strange to be able to travel into a neighboring state. And, and granted, we're not talking a major urban center. We're talking a small rural town. But it was just so refreshing to see people's faces. And I know there are those who would spin this as, well, Brian, Brian, you know, that was so irresponsible. You probably killed every one of those people by, you know, going to see them. I don't know. You know, there's times where I've been out and about, and I'm, I'm sure I've probably given someone a cold. Maybe gave them the flu. I hope I didn't. But for my point is, for the most part, none of us ever know. And there's something really unhealthy with the, the fear-based mentality that we're being told we have to embrace to where, I mean, come on, seriously, you know, now, now you got to get probed like an alien to find out if, if you have, uh, if you have COVID. Yeah. The nasal swab was bad enough, but now apparently the Chinese have invented, you know, a rectal swab that will test for it. Two masks. You're getting probed like you've been kidnapped by little green men. I mean, if, if you didn't know better, would that not sound like, you know, this is what we're going to do to the pledges, you know, when they, you know, want to join our fraternity. It sounds like a hor- horrible prank. And yet this is the reality. And, and it's not just reality, but somewhere like this needs to be an enforceable reality. I want to get off this planet. <laughs> Serious. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to take a minute here to thank my sponsor, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. You got to wear a lot of hats as a small business owner, and being an insurance expert, unfortunately, that's one of those hats. I mean, you have to do it. That is that is part of doing business. But if you are looking for some help in terms of someone who really knows and understands and will work with you to to make sure that you are the insurance expert that you that you need to be, that you understand everything that you need to understand, you got to get a hold of my friends at uh, Landmark. Risk Management and Insurance. There's a contact link in the show notes at the com. Please pay a visit to my website down at the bottom of the show notes. These are the notes for uh, February 1st. You'll find the link to Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. All right. Couple, uh, couple of different uh, topics I wanted to touch on here. This is uh, one from the Foundation for Economic Education, David uh, Chapik. How free speech drives economic progress. And this is important. I mean, look, we I know we kind of talk free speech, you know, it's the foundation of a free society. It's it's unfortunately very, very true. And I can't think of a time within my lifespan that I have ever seen free speech more at risk, you know, and I mean, recognizably at risk of being censored. Now, I have to admit, I'm looking at it, you know, primarily from a moral standpoint, from a, uh, you know, an ethical standpoint. It's it's not right. To silence a voice simply because you disagree with it. That's that that if anything uh, belies a weakness of one's beliefs as opposed to, you know, dealing from a position of strength. You know, if you've got truth and, you know, there's strength to your argument, you shouldn't need to have to silence other voices to make your case. I never had thought of it, though, in terms of how it would be bad for the economy by censoring certain voices. This is what David Chappick has to say. By the way, he's a high school student, but he nails it. He says free speech is usually considered a constitutional right, which is certainly correct. It's also often discussed as a human right, also correct. But the benefits of free speech go further. Free speech acts as a gateway toward human improvement and the betterment of society. How, you ask? Well, it's simple. Innovation. And he talks about innovation through collaboration. Most great discoveries and achievements, he writes, come not through one person's sole genius, but through collaboration with others. Take, for example, the one and only Albert Einstein. His special theory of relativity was based not on his own solitary contemplations, but on discussions with two other innovators, Marcel Grossman and Michel Besso. Grossman's work in mathematics is said to have greatly helped Einstein. Who knows what would have happened had the latter worked alone? Well, that makes sense. So discussion leads to innovation. He writes, when we're able to discuss and collaborate with one another, we are putting together our own individual gifts and talents, a principle known in economics as specialization toward a broader purpose. In this case, discovering, inventing or creating something. And just as with Einstein, when we are free to collaborate, society is improved. The creativity of the market economy, the increasing return so important in modern growth theory, in part, arises from what happens when people with information get together and talk. That's according to economists Curtis Simon and Clark Nardinelli. They wrote this after studying 19th and 20th century growth in English cities. They say the talk is necessary to turn information into productive knowledge. Now, at this point, he says the writer, the reader may protest, 
Well, of course, certain discussion can lead to innovation and discovery, but we wouldn't ban that kind of speech. We would only ban harmful speech. And aside from the subjectivity of what harmful or hateful or insert derogatory word here, speech means there's another problem best illustrated by example. Galileo Galilei, sometimes called the father of modern physics, was a proponent of heliocentrism, the theory that the earth revolves around the sun. The religious leaders of the day disagreed with his theory. They thought it was unscriptural and therefore harmful speech. In 1616, the Inquisition of the Catholic Church brought charges against Galileo. They essentially forced him to publicly recant this belief, although he still held it privately. Science, and by extension progress, was held back because it didn't meet the speech standards of the day. And this can be seen today in one of the worst regimes in the modern day, the Chinese regime. He says the Chinese Communist Party censorship, known as the Great Firewall, prevents users from accessing certain content the government sees as harming national interests, harming ethnic unity, subverting state authority, and so on. In other words, it censors anything the government doesn't like. Now, this includes the Chinese government blocking the search for a word that could be related to something bad for the government. For example, one too many searches for the word river, which is pronounced like the name of a former Chinese president. According to one analysis, this inefficiency costs China dearly, especially in the area of indigenous innovation. China's lack of innovation derives partially from entrepreneurs not knowing enough about the latest trends, something attributable to the closed nature of the country's Internet. Slow traffic, even with tools to hop over the Great Firewall, also hinders creativity. He writes, the inability of Chinese users, many of whom are entrepreneurs seeking to start businesses, to freely view content has blocked innovation in the world's most populous country. Unfortunately, this is anything but unique, as countries all over Southeast Asia have similar, if often less extreme, restrictions. Singapore, for example, requires, a new, requires news websites that receive more than 50,000 views a month to obtain a license in addition to paying $50,000. And now the United States is starting to do the same. Big tech platforms are beginning to censor content they don't agree with or don't want people to see. And now we know from the lips of Twitter's CEO himself, this is not going to end soon. Those who disagree with the status quo must be stopped. Even worse, while the U.S. government is not forcing this, it is most certainly pushing for it. As some government officials in the Democratic Party, even moderates like Senator Joe Manchin, have explicitly approved this and similar censorship. This kind of censorship can only serve to stifle discussion and growth. And as seen throughout history and even throughout the modern world, censorship of free speech harms innovation and holds society back. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing a dissent on the case Abrams v. United States, put it well, quote, But when men have realized that time has upset many fighting faiths, they may come to re- believe even more than they believe the very foundations of their own conduct, that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas, that the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and the truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out. End quote. Right now, 
we need to realize that free speech is important, not only as an individual liberty, but as a fundamental factor driving the growth and betterment of society. And again, this is uh, David Chapek. He was a high school student. He's an honor student at San Jacinto College. Sharp young man. And he's right. If you're looking to solve problems, generally, more freedom is going to be the answer because it, it sets people free to be problem solvers. And, and I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush, but bear with me. When you give government a problem to solve, what you are in fact doing is creating a situation where uh, bureaucrats can work on a problem endlessly. With the taxpayers providing funding and they just, you know, we collect this money from the taxpayers and it's part of our budget. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude here, but the problem is never solved. You know, if you pay me a, a, a pretty nice amount and typically, you know, there people are making decent money working on these problems. Yeah, I'm never going to solve it. I mean, it's simple job security. But the market People making these decisions, people innovating and becoming, you know, entrepreneurial about it will solve a problem for more people, more affordably and with less bureaucratic overhead and less, you know, uh, regulatory uh, rigmarole than government will do. But the biggest obstacle they face often is, you know, government standing in their way. Sometimes there are barriers to entry in terms of licenses and fees, and you have to, you know, have this kind of a study done. So the laws in that case tend to favor those who have a lot of capital. And this, unfortunately, is for most people what is held up as, see, that's what capitalism is. This is why capitalism is such a bad system. But what they're actually describing is something that could better be described as crony capitalism. There is nothing wrong with private property. There's nothing wrong with solving problems and innovating for others. By the way, in my home state of Utah, there is some landmark legislation going through that would make it a lot easier for innovators to innovate without seeking permission from government first. I'll see if I can get Connor Boyack to join me on my show here and maybe talk a little bit about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.